Howdy folks, Tom Barbelay here. Unfortunately, Blog Talk Radio cut the last 20 minutes of this evening's recording. We had been going over time for uh, a number of weeks now, so perhaps this was slightly precipitous on the part of Blog Talk Radio. In the future, what I will do is book the shows for 90 minutes, which hopefully will allocate enough recording time. Apologies to Gerald de Jung in particular, because we had really started warming up by the last 20 minutes, and we were talking for an extended period of time with regards to his current development at Darwin at Home. I recommend folks check out his podcast at darwinathome.org to get more information about the current developments of Darwin at Home. The recording does contain a number of good points and a number of great discussions. Here it is. Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. For more information on the Biota Podcasts, go to biota.org slash podcast. We have our first caller. Hi there, Tom. Hello, Gerald. Happy New Year. It's been a long time since we last spoke. How are you? It sure, it sure has. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you perfectly. So as you're a seasoned veteran, we have uh, just a few bits of news and notes, and then we can get into this evening's topic. Um, about this time, in two weeks' time, I will be driving between Sydney, Australia, and Canberra, Australia, with my brother, who I haven't seen for, I believe, eight years now. So I will be in Australia in two weeks' time and not recording a bias podcast. However, I do have two podcasts, including one with Gerald that I recorded over the Thanksgiving period last year, which I'll put out in the feed while I'm away. I also have Bruce Damer's PhD dissertation, which I've listened through to and will uh, will edit in a minor fashion and then put in the Biota feed as well. So there will actually be quite a bit of audio while I'm away. But the next Biota Live will be Friday, March 27th at 8 p.m. Pacific, when we will have on William R. Buckley. And folks not familiar with William R. Buckley's work, he has been part of the artificial life community since A-Life 1. And he contacted me through Dick Gordon's Second Life uh, embryo seminar series and asked if he could come on boat live to talk about artificial life on an atomic level. And he's a fascinating fellow. He sent a brief paper out to the Biota Conversations mailing list which outlines his ideas of, of, of complete self-replication and what is required in order to do that in a kind of um, almost a metaphysical sense rather than a physical sense to start out with. So William R. Buckley will be on March 27th, Friday, 8 p.m. Pacific. So only a couple of bits of news and notes this evening. Uh, the first is that I received an email from Sharon Minsook through the week asking if other folks in the Silicon Valley area would like to organize Silicon Valley lunches through the Facebook group. I know there is going to be at least one Graysum Silicon Valley uh, while I'm away and obviously also a Graysum Boston, so apologies for not having news and notes associated with them. The Graysum site, G-R-E-Y-T-H-U-M-B.org, is a good source for information, uh, particularly how to get to the mailing lists. Gerald, in terms of Grace and Benelux, what's your current thinking with regards to the next meeting? Well, there have been uh, a couple of uh, sort of uh, requests from people who, who were at previous ones, uh, looking to have a new one, although uh, I just haven't had the time to put it together, actually. Well, as you may have heard, I, I sent out a, a request, I think, towards the end of last year, possibly even in the last to live for last year with regards to folks in the Benelux area who would be interested in um, basically taking on some of the duties. I, I do appreciate the, the heavy weight that falls on your shoulders and similarly Justin Lyon isn't even in the UK anymore. He's, he seems to be in Iraq for most of, uh, for most of the time. Uh, so for folks in London as well, there was a, a kind of, you know, I think three or four meetings worth great some um, London group uh, that Justin was the, one of the primary organisers for, and now Justin is obviously in Iraq. It would be wonderful if someone in the London area uh, would be interested to, to pick up the, you know, the mailing list, maybe a couple of people, uh, and just organise you know, semi-frequent get-togethers. I think the Silicon Valley lunches model, uh, particularly for the London area and potentially also for Benelux and, and other areas around the world, could be the way... Um, if, you know, formal evening meetings aren't the easiest way to, to organise a get-together. In terms of your numbers, Gerald, do you get a sense that you could do a kind of Benelux lunches series as well? I'm not sure you can do it that frequently. You'd have to sort of connect with, uh, with the groups in the universities or something. You know, it would be mostly students, I think. I don't, I don't think you'd find too many people for, uh, for such a regular thing. You know, it's going to be not too frequent, but it'll be uh, 
interesting enough because you know we got you don't need a large group even if you have you know maybe ten people if if they're interested then you can have a really really interesting evening and and go have some beers afterwards so there's there's no real too much of a lower limit but um yeah, it's just a question of getting uh, getting things together. On the one hand, I would like to uh, have something to show again before I uh, go crazy to get everybody uh, involved, and uh, that won't be all too long. But um, you know, to to search around and find other people to present, and you know, to give it a good theme and uh, find a location for it and everything that costs quite a bit of time. And I've been uh, spending a lot of time working lately, so, uh, so there just hasn't been the available uh, relaxed hours. Certainly. And I mean, that's the feedback that I've gotten from the Silicon Valley lunches group as well, is that uh, a number of folks on the group who were originally quite gung-ho about meeting for the lunches are now in, you know, as you say, um, because most of them, if not all of them, work in the tech industry or in crunch periods and just they don't have the time even to, to meet for lunches. But ironically, my friends uh, in the Benelux area who are from Australia originally are actually traveling through Australia currently, and I will meet up with our mutual friends um, through my time in Australia and hand out uh, Biota CDs and, uh, you know, get the Australian folk that I meet enthused with regards to, you know, what we're trying to do with Biota and Greytham, uh, and hopefully that will percolate back to my friends in the Benelux area who will uh, attend or maybe even host uh, a future Greytham Benelux meeting. And moving from these ideas of, of getting together for casual lunches, uh, Dick Gordon sent out on the Biota Conversations mailing list recently uh, his plan for Biota 5, that is the fifth Biota conference. It's been, um, well, it will be nearly a decade, I want to say seven years, if, if Dick holds it next year. In 2010, he's slated to, to put it on in uh, Winnipeg, Canada. Um, but I think it's an, interesting, it's an interesting logistical problem currently, particularly as so many of the biota contributors are, are located in uh, you know, such far-flung parts of the world. But I think probably giving a year run-up, or maybe even more than a year, we may, you know, it may take a couple of years to actually organize a, a proper biota conference, gives an opportunity for the community to start saving and start planning to come to some part of the world which may not be their current location. I was... Um, emailing Dick through the week with regards to the transit time for folks in Boston and these kind of epicenters of artificial life that already exist in the U.S. But another important thing, and certainly in my own feedback and conversation with Bruce, and I think you've been on some of those emails as well, Gerald, I feel a kind of personal responsibility to make these biota conferences if they start again in a conference form as open as possible, and particularly with regards to cost and location and planning and all these kind of things. I don't want people to have the sense that these things will be sprung on them and to the same extent if they can't attend, certainly um, in terms of some kind of potentially online contribution, um, maybe some live video link up. I mean, these kind of technologies in order to engage people in the community who may not be able to attend a physical conference. And in this regard, also, there'll be an A-Life conference next year, and obviously our, our last guest was Mark Badeau. So, I mean, I think getting Mark involved with regards to the Biota 5 planning committee will be relatively critical as well. But, I mean, hats off to Dick for actually getting the ball rolling. I said somewhat tongue-in-cheek to him that I would only feel comfortable with it being called a Biota conference if, uh, if Gerald and other folks who've participated in Biota Live could attend. Uh, so I think... The aims are good with regards to a conference in the future. Uh, I just think it'll be interesting to put it together logistically and also allow the kind of openness that I've tried to do with the, the likes of Biota Live and the other Biota podcasts. What's your thinking with regards to a, a, a fifth Biota conference, Gerald? Oh, I think it's uh, potentially a really good idea. Um, what, what Dick is doing with Second Life is, uh, is also really good because then you don't have to necessarily uh, expend a lot of fossil fuels to go... Uh, and hang out uh, in the same space. Yeah, I, I'd pretty well go anywhere in the world where uh, Biota 5 was held. Certainly if we give a year or two lead in, even with the you know, the nature of the contemporary economy and certainly the emails that I receive from uh, folks in the community who are you know, in a, a less than ideal financial position currently, I mean, I, I would hope that we would have means to either subsidize or allow uh, particular guests speakers uh, to, to come at reduced rates 
Um, you know, this um, is the thing. I mean, when when you um, you know academic conferences, uh, everybody goes to all the conferences in their area or in their you know area of expertise. And this is uh, you know the, the part of the the perks of being a, a professor, being an academic. And uh, needless to say, uh, they don't pay their own flights. You know, it's all taken care of. So there's a certain uh, you know, a, a support for. Uh, for everyone getting together physically in the academic world, they're subsidized. They get uh, they get flights all over the place, and uh, you know we have to do without that. So everybody has to fend for themselves, sort of, in general. So if we can get anything, maybe there's a, a, a sponsor possibility. Wasn't Toyota? Um, what was it? Three or um, no? Two was it actually? In in, in uh, Cambridge, it was sponsored by CyberLife, Steve Graham's company. Two, three, and four, and potentially even one. My understanding is one One could have been sponsored by Sun and a couple of other... I mean, obviously, uh, Bruce is probably the best person to talk about. My recollection is all the beta conferences up to four were actually sponsored by one institution or another. I think four was sponsored by... Um, yeah, anyway, I think all of them were sponsored, some of them by smaller academic institutions and, you know, and uh, things that wouldn't be considered necessarily. Uh, well, maybe, Dick, maybe Dick can get some funding from the University of Manitoba. <laughs> yes, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to ask Dick for that. My, my feeling is that within our community, and particularly the kind of extended realms of our community, I mean, I get correspondence from people who work for Goldman Sachs, who work for... You know, IBM, Intel. I mean, there, there, there is no shortage of large companies. Um, I mean, if you look at, um, you know, pharmaceuticals. I mean, there, there are a number of companies uh, that get real world benefit from this kind of collective artificial life movement, and the ability that Biota has to actually reach out of, you know, a more formalized conference, like for example, the A Life conference, into something uh, which you know brings in folks such as Dick, but also I think in in terms of you know what Mark Badeau is doing, I mean the, the, these kind of enterprises reach outside of our more traditional kind of tech sector uh, or academic academic sponsorship groups. We should certainly make sure that um, that Al Lundell is in, in, invited so that everything uh, <laughs> gets recorded at video. Yes, well I think that's the nature of, uh, in some regard, making it a, an open video streamed conference as well. I mean I think it's critical that we not only have a a, a kind of takeaway video record, but we also stream it um, because that's mm-hmm. the you know that's the contemporary paradigm with regards to these things. And I think we always need to be maybe even slight. I mean, this was the nature of having Mark Badeau on mm-hmm. that we need to be slightly prodding of the the academic community in terms of um, the, the level of openness that these kind of things have. So this is going to be a talking point, um, obviously, for a number of buyers' lives into the future. But I wanted to raise it with the community initially that there is there is slating for a bio to five. So I wanted to talk to Gerald this evening about the past three podcasts and then talk a little bit about uh, Darwin's 200th anniversary and also what Gerald is doing uh, with Darwin at home currently. But after the past three podcasts, have you had the opportunity to listen to all three, Gerald? Yeah, I've listened to them. I can't say I remember absolutely everything. They're they're quite long, of course. So I'm listening to them in uh, uh, in in bits and pieces in the train and stuff like that. And uh, there's a lot of other stuff going on, so I can't remember all the details. You may have to help me with with this certainly. or that. But uh, oh, definitely, it's interesting to listen to. Yes, I mean, I think the the fascinating thing with regards to the Larry Yeager discussion was a large portion of it was resolved with a short part of the uh, the Mark Badeau discussion, but I mean, just to recap with regards to my own sense of the Larry Yeager discussion, we spent the first half of the podcast describing what a, an artificial life curriculum would look like, what the core of an artificial life curriculum should look like, and I know this is a topic that, that you and I recorded as well over the Thanksgiving period, Gerald, but then what I found curious was catching Larry with regards to the idea that then that needed to be converted into a kind of international solution, that there were uh, in academics the world over teaching artificial life courses which may not have the level of detail that we had even discussed with regards to what Larry believed the core components to be and I think what was interesting was catching Larry in terms of him thinking about this as a kind of broad general problem and then applying it to his own 
particular instance, uh, you know, teaching at, at Indiana and the kind of things that he <coughs> needs to do in that capacity. And I think that was an interesting part of the problem, the idea that we're not just talking about ideals here in terms of what is artificial life, what is the core of artificial life. We're actually dealing with tens, potentially even hundreds of people like Larry that are dealing with, you know, the, the rigors of academia in some regard, the politics of academia in another regard, and just the, you know, the, the practical nature of it. And, I, I mean, what was your sense with regards to that discussion, Gerald? It was definitely a fascinating discussion because uh, it was great to hear about, uh, you know, artificial life actually being used in the academic world and, uh, and you know, considered to be a, a legitimate uh, study. I was thinking as well, I mean, at the moment, it's not at the stage that uh, other subjects would probably be at because, you know, when when you have a textbook that goes through course materials from, uh, you know, sort of established course materials from beginning to end, that's the kind of thing that you can sort of work into the earlier years of an undergrad program. But um, artificial life is probably one of those things that are, that, that you know, you just can't really... Uh, put together the definitive textbook, at least not right now, and maybe not for quite a while. So it's something that's going to be happening, you know, in the in the grad school and in the the upper years of undergrad. So it's it's not something that'll go into sort of like core curriculum in the same sense, I don't think, unless you know somebody's able to really create a, a, a kind of a legit textbook that uh, that the earlier years students could follow. Well, I think this is really the challenge. I mean, in some regard, I disagree with you in terms of the fact that there are two ways to look at this cohesion argument. The first is with regards to time, that artificial life is a relatively young discipline, but at the same point, it's been relatively scattered. And I think there are certainly a number of counterexamples to that, to things that already exist in textbooks and are already taught to you know, undergraduates, whether it's not its first year or third year, certainly somewhere in the undergraduate stream, that are very contemporary. I mean, I think outside um, the sciences, perhaps in the, the social sciences, you know, there's a lot of political science, a lot of economics, a lot of stuff which is really only in the past five to seven years, which is still taught to undergraduates. In the sciences, obviously, there are components of informatics, computer science, and these kind of uh, subjects have a lot of very contemporary and quite scattered uh, components, which I think make artificial life almost look like a, you know, <laughs> a traditional calculus course in some regard. So, I mean, I think there are already counterexamples with regards to the scattershot idea. I'm probably just biased because um, because I studied mathematics, so that's, you know, most of the things you learn are from uh, a goodly number of decades, if not centuries ago. Certainly, certainly. And the second part of it is the idea that, you know, everyone will have a different, a different set. And I think what talking with Larry was trying to distill was actually there is quite a solid shared subset that if it isn't in, you know, all artificial life courses currently being taught, it will be in between, you know, 70 and 90% of those taught. And the ones that aren't teaching it probably should. And I think the idea of utility is something that certainly Mark Bedeau understood immediately. The idea that what we would be trying to do in kind of amassing this, uh, this core artificial life curriculum is really providing some assistive means to the academics that were teaching these kind of courses and, as you say, potentially lowering the bar for where these courses could be taught. I mean, we immediately think of what we do in some regard as being, in one sense, a one extreme obsessive hobbyist the nature of you know model trains or painting or these kind of things, but on the other extreme, something that has a relatively high level of uh, you know academic rigor or at least some background understanding that's needed to in order to understand certain components of our simulations. So we have these two extremes as kind of you know gentlemen hobbyists in some regard. But I think the reality is that the the components of what we do are based on things that are already being taught in a wide variety of undergraduate courses but don't have the kind of tuning that we get through artificial life. I mean, I think talking about mathematics, certainly um, uh, nonlinear equations, as I was taught in, you know, second, third, and fourth year, are pretty well the bread and butter of, you know, good components of artificial life. And there are certain elements of artificial life where the mathematics is actually improved upon. 
certainly when I think of the predator-prey equations uh, with regards to uh, applied math. The kind of stuff that we do with artificialized simulations if we use predator-prey-like or derived predator-prey equations are in fact produce far more elegant solutions than are typically taught in undergraduate uh, you know, applied math courses that relate to predator-prey equations. So and I think we have some utility that could benefit you know, undergraduate academic teaching outside of what we would normally consider artificial life as being. But, I mean, that's a secondary discussion before we actually get this idea of a textbook together. And I think what was fascinating talking with Mark in particular was that he, maybe more in a philosophical sense, understood the, the utility of not necessarily having a textbook to start off with, but just having a discussion. And I think that's what I'm interested in, in hearing from folks who are teaching artificial life courses, and obviously the International Society is ideally suited for this. But the ability, basically, to collate what the, the community, folks who may not have ever attended an A-Life conference, who may never have listened to a Biota podcast, who may never have heard of Graytham, who are teaching artificial life courses without any of this kind of exposure, what they are actually teaching as well. And I think this has an amazing outreach component to it that Mark Badeau was you know, very receptive to um, in his appearance on Biota Live. So really that was my discussion, my thoughts with regards to the discussion with Larry, and I think we've talked about, um, you know, the main points that I thought came out of that. I mean, the important thing with someone like Larry is, you know, he's, he's on the ground. He's basically at the point where we need to be constantly communicating and constantly instigating with regards to this aspect, and it's wonderful to have Larry on the, the podcast. I'd like to have him back in the near future to discuss a number of, of issues um, that have come both through the discussion we had with him last time and also other folks in the community want to talk more about algorithms and things like that, and Larry has a lot of time. One question I, that came to me while I was talking to Larry and particularly thinking about what you're doing currently with Darwin at Home, I remember um, Justin Lyon talking and people like Robert Bryce and Travis and others talking about hybridizing the kind of core ideas of, of what you were doing in Darwin at home with something like an Oblate brain or um, potentially some of the Scott stuff that Scott Schaefer is doing or these kind of, you know, putting together um, in some regard completely different simulations to try and hybridize a better, um, you know, a better model. Is this something that you're still thinking about? Um, it's, it's something that I'm thinking about to the extent that I'm making it extremely possible but on the other hand it's something that I'm not thinking about doing certainly it doesn't really require another person doesn't it I mean that's the, that's yeah, the critical component. it just happens to be you know my, my interest is in the uh, you know the sort of the physicality of it the um, the, the the actual you know time and, and, and mass and everything physics you know the whole uh, the whole uh, and and the um, you know development of sort of Muscular abilities and, and and you know not even I'm not even terribly interested in uh, in sensor abilities. Uh, what what I'm actually trying to do with this game idea is to completely delegate all of that uh, from from perception to strategy. Delegate all of that to the to the people who log in, which is also a little more interesting for them because then they get to do more things, and I I get to focus on the um, you know making sure that the um, that the physicality of it evolves uh, appropriately, and uh, in a way, you know, you could say this is this is perfectly opening the door for something like uh, Scott Schaefer stuff or uh, or whatever else, some other uh, some other brain simulation to just sort of you know become the puppeteer because um, I really only want to develop the puppets in a sense. Certainly, certainly. Well, speaking from the ideal to the to the real world. I think the discussion with Zan Gill raised, in fact, ironically, Zan and I did more communicating after our Biota Live discussion than we did through the Biota Live discussion, particularly when Zan was able to, to read about uh, Freeman Dyson's um, analysis with regards to computational simulation associated with uh, global warming. But I think it's interesting because I was also um, communicating with Bonnie DeVarco uh, with regards to these same problems. I like the idea of the world game in terms of a, a metaphor for what people like Justin Lyon are, are, are trying to do with, with Simudyne. 
But I think the criticism with regards to it mapping onto reality, uh, particularly Freeman Dyson's very dry way of saying, you know, all that simulation does is reinforce what we know. It doesn't reinforce what we don't know is an interesting criticism with regards to the world game hypothesis. As you listened to the Zangill discussion, did you, did you get that sense? Or, I mean, what was your feeling with regards to that discussion? Um, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've been a, a, a Fuller fan for, for a long time, although more the um, you know, sort of scientific or philosophical or whatever uh, aspect of his stuff rather than uh, the, you know, the political world game uh, idea. But, uh, no, I don't know, it's, uh, it's, it's, I think that, uh, the idea of world game is, is I'm, I'm still convinced that it's uh, one of those things that should be sort of real core curriculum. We're talking secondary school. People should be playing world game at every secondary school on a weekly basis. You know, that's, that's the kind of, uh, that's the kind of, scrambling I think we need in this, these times because uh, things are getting a little strange. My concern with regards to the world game hypothesis is it just reinforces our own you know, particular uh, views. I mean, it, it is based purely on the people that are participating in the world game and in the case of the artificial life simulation, the, the environments which are constructed. It's, a, it's an exercise, you know, it's like, a, it's inaccurate, but it's like... A, a group session or something, you know, every, the, I think the idea of world game is that people take on roles. So, uh, you'd be, uh, you'd be forced to take on the role of someone from a particular part of the planet and you'd be forced to study what their life is like and, uh, and try to see the world from their point of view. And then, uh, you know, I think that's, it's more like a role playing game than, uh, and, and something that you can really learn from than you know, something that just, is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Everybody there will take their prejudices along. I think the idea is to open minds. So in terms of the, the paradigm of, of world game is what Justin Lyne is trying to do with Simudine. The example that I gave was with regards to um, low or no income uh, healthcare coverage in the US. Do you see that that is a, a potential you know, world game problem that could net a solution? Now, I'm not. I, I don't know enough about world game to to know if that's. I mean, you have to be able to fill, facilitate one of those uh, sort of sessions. I think probably Bonnie'd be much more uh, versed in that sort of thing. The challenge, which is what I I put back to Justin specifically, is that the entities which exist within the uh, the power component associated with the problem are in constantly kind of reinforcing. Uh, positions. There is no notion of the common good or even the poor or low or no income with regards to any of the components that exist in the in the real world associated with the U.S. health system. And I think in these kind of situations, we need to have almost a a, a metalogic, a, a meta strategy, or really a, a philosophy of simulation that is able to overcome these kind of problems. I think one of the uh, one of the philosophical aspects of world game, if I'm not mistaken, I, mean, I don't know enough about it really. I haven't read uh, specifically too much about it, but I think uh, you know Fuller was uh, was the, the person who used the word or the prefix omni, uh, you know, more than more than is uh, you know humanly possible. The word the, the prefix omni appeared zillions of times in his in his book. So I, I would imagine that the world game is structured such that. It only makes sense if you do the entire world in a session. You know, you just got to have the uh, the whole uh, the whole world projected onto the floor and and everybody playing their roles. So it wouldn't be applicable to anything except the whole. Right. So it's in fact a very bad model for uh, finding solutions in the real world to specific problems. Then. Yeah. Well, in a sense, I mean, you're not going to get into very specifics, but I think it's more something you can really learn from at a you know, uh, for adolescence or something like that, and and for later on, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a a workshop theme or something like that, I suppose. So, in terms of the kind of problems that Justin Lyon frames in Simudine, I mean, the low or no income healthcare coverage in the U.S. I mean, do you see that artificial life could pose solutions to these kind of problems? I don't see it now, but uh, that's uh, I don't I, I don't I don't know. This is uh, is this on the Simudine site? 
Uh, this is an example that Justin gave in a discussion. He also gave one with regards to uh, mineral resources. But I, I think the low, no-income healthcare one is one that I feel particularly passionately about because I think it actually provides a challenge which ultimately, if we can move past the... Um, I, I don't think Freeman Dyson is being nasty when he makes his... Um, when he makes his against claims. I think what he wants is to motivate uh, folks such as ourselves uh, to do things a little bit better. I feel the same way to a certain extent with regards to uh, Briggs Plyce's Panspermian Challenge, but I do tend to read these people with the, the best possible reading. But I think, honestly, from Freeman Dyson's background, really what he is trying to do is just instigate better simulations from us, and that really requires some kind of... Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I would like to see it in a kind of philosophical context. That's my own bias. But perhaps a, a new science or a new kind of means of, of dealing with these kind of problems, which also somehow encompass what we don't know or maybe the, the unknown uh, within our simulation in a better or more meaningful way. So, I mean, perhaps that's part of the challenge. I certainly feel people like Zan and, and Bonnie, uh, have, having come from almost a very ideal uh, perspective with regards to these kind of problems can be brought very quickly into the into the real-world nature of the stuff that folks such as Justin are doing, and ideally the kind of stuff I'd like to see artificial life doing more proactively. Um, but it does require certain kinds of framing problems like the um, low, no-income um, healthcare problem in order to show that these are real-world issues. I mean, certainly when Sam talks about environmental issues, my reference is always with regards to junk science, it's with regards to petroleum, it's with regards to these kind of industries which constantly pump misinformation out and constantly, you know, do the classic fear, uncertainty, doubt uh, components, which is obviously analogous with regards to, um, you know, creationism et al. as well. So, I mean, I think there are shared themes through this, but it's the, we need thinkers such as Zan and Bonnie and people such as yourself to, to move it into a, a, a different realm in terms of all our collective thinking. Um, and I think that was the challenge that I really posed to Zan, and she seems to have now really kind of, to use a Bruce Damerism, grokked it perfectly. So I'm looking forward to when Zan comes uh, back on. I think Bonnie will be on with her, and I hope you can come on as well, and we can talk about all of this in a, you know, in a more real-world context. Mark Badeau uh, was our, our final guest, and Mark raised a number of really interesting uh, questions. I mean, particularly, again, as with Larry, I thought the second half of, of Mark's uh, discussion on Bias Life was, um, in some regard, more challenging and more interesting than the first half. I thought his discussion with regards to wet artificial life was very interesting, and I think he's, as, as came through, um, particularly uh, when talking about Craig Ventner, I think he's a, a positivist in the extreme with regards to a lot of these components. I think the challenge really is how we create simulations that assist the artificial life community at the same point. Also, you know, lead back into the soft artificial life community and to a certain extent as well, the hard artificial life community. In terms of the first half of, of uh, Mark's appearance on BioLive, is that what you got as well in terms of how we as soft artificial life developers can assist the wet artificial life community? I, I don't know. I don't, see, uh, I don't see there being a lot of overlap, actually. I think there's a... Um, significant difference in the background you have to have to be able to play in those two domains, don't you think? Well, my understanding from talking with him was there's almost an agreed-upon API within wet artificial life which can then be passed to soft artificial life developers. So if, you look, at the, if, if you look at the way that they create protocells, for example, and uh, the whole paradigm with regards to describing the protocell almost in a digital sense, or at least in something that's uh, analogous or considerably closer to computational simulation than um, you know, the stuff that Dick Gordon talks about, for example. This gives uh, almost an API-like interface. And I think certainly you know, what happens in the future is you have people like Dick who perpetually instigate discussion, and you have people like Bruce who perpetually bring people into discussion, um, you know, moving in their particular directions, and you have Mark doing what he's doing. And I mean, protocols are growing. I certainly um, was impressed with the last Artificial Life journal that had some discussion with regards to uh, protocells and the overlap uh, in terms of simulation, although I, haven't, I don't own the uh, protocell book. Uh, but I think it's, there is potential in the future, but it is through this idea of the API, and my hope is that that was the, the right reading of what Mark was saying, uh, but certainly that was my sense on the call. 
The thing that really interested me about the discussion with Mark, as I said, was the second half, and particularly how, as with Larry Yeager, we really need to have people like Mark in the discussion, um, because I think certainly little things like, you know, that he, he didn't know about Gray, some of these kind of things uh, are obviously uh, points that can be built on, but also the um, potential power uh, that the International Society of can have, and also the potential good that the International Society can have within the artificial life community. Have you ever been a member of the International Society of Artificial Life, Gerald? Uh, no, 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 I've nothing, uh, I've never had anything to do with it, no. Yeah, I've been a member for the past four years. It's $65 a year and you get four journals for that money. Um, and I would like to think, moving into the future, and certainly this is the feedback that I gave to Mark from his last appearance, that the International Society could be a lot more proactive, particularly with regards to the uh, hobbyist and also industrial components, industrial uses of artificial life, but also with regards to the academic community. And I don't know what form that will take. I think the upcoming elections are going to be very beneficial, but my main concern is that um, I've not been able to get anyone from the kind of broader biota community that isn't already a member to the International Society to actually pay the $65. This in part is my fault because I've been able to get free copies of the journal and various other things for people over the past four years and, and shout out here to Kathleen Kennedy at uh, Reed because she does an amazing job uh, getting wide, you know, wide variety of folks in the community free copies. I think they just print way too many. So in some regards, I have um, self-sabotaged and probably subsidised the Artificial Life Journal in this regard. But I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting group that could run in parallel to Biota. Um, and certainly what I'd like to see Biota doing is really just instigating and promoting discussion. But I think the International Society has a degree of formalism and certainly an existing connection with an academic community, uh, which is very different than the kind of folk who are obviously listening to Biota Live and participating in the Biota community. But I think it doesn't necessarily have to be completely in parallel. I think there are a number of joining points. Um, and certainly Mark has been very receptive to that in his communication with me and Bruce Damer. Um, and I think there's a great degree of potential in the future. But reflecting on the ideas of, um, as you say, with regards to these conventions, um, obviously the International Society has been heavily connected with the A-Life Convention as well. I've never attended an A-Life Convention. Have you ever attended an A-Life Convention, Gerald? No, what have there been, like 11 or so now? Yeah, the next one will be the 12th one. Uh, the last one was the first in, in Europe. It was in the U.K., but the previous ones have all, I think, all exclusively been in the U.S. There are now additional A-Life conferences. The fourth Australian A-Life conference is happening at the end of this year, um, and I know that there is a, uh, a European A-Life conference, which may be annual. So the A-Life conference itself is, um, you know, it, it straddles a very interesting line in terms of, as, as you say, these indigenous conferences that are, that are cropping up um, elsewhere. But I think it was interesting listening to Mark and also reflecting on my own situation. I mean, as you said, the cost associated for uh, a non-academically affiliated individual to get to even one of these conferences is quite great. Uh, and I hope with the last Day Life conference was that it would be held in the U.S. because that would give me some opportunity to attend. Um, unfortunately, I think the last Day Life conference was so successful in the U.K., the next one will probably be somewhere in Europe or uh, or Asia or somewhere like that, because I think there's, a, or maybe even South America. I mean, the South American artificial life community is, is strengthening, you know, by the year, um, thanks to Avida and a wide variety of other, um, you know, organizational efforts that are existing there. So I'm not sure where the next day life conference will be, but it's certainly, aside from the journal, the other uh, aspect of um, the International Society. The International Society also maintains if you look at the journal, probably a third of the folk on there, including Professor Dawkins and Tom Ray and Craig Reynolds, are historical figures. Um, and I'm not really clear, and this is a question I didn't have the chance to ask Mark about specifically, how these people are actively integrated in, in what the international society does. But it's an interesting group, and I think in the future maybe through these elections, if people actually join the International Society, maybe not through the elections, you know, we can, we can motivate some small changes in, in, in various ways. But I think just an openness to things like the international, you know, curriculum, what is artificial life as it's being taught in universities, 
I mean, these kind of things are, are fascinating. And I think also we really need to start addressing as a community, and this is really more on a biota level than an international society level, uh, the industrial aspects of artificial life. I mean, what interested me as well from what Mark was saying was this idea that the way artificial life is used in industry is always you know, adjunct, it's never primary. And I think of things like Java, for example, obviously you're, you're very well versed in the Java community. I mean, Java is used for a wide variety of applications, but also as a thing in and of itself. And it certainly has value both as something that facilitates a wide variety of technologies, but also something in and of itself. I mean, do you think that's a, a similar analogy with artificial life? What do you mean analogy to what? As artificial life is used in industry is akin to the way Java is used in industry in some regard. Well, no, <clears throat> as far I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be able to say anything about how uh, artificial life is used in industry, and uh, and you know the way that Java is used is it's on a scale and and that that's it's hard to imagine actually. So, you know, it's it's in so many different places and uh, and it's doing so many different things. You know, artificial life in industry is still something you uh, you have to be careful about mentioning. I don't, I mean, this is true. This is the funny thing. To put the words artificial life together with regards to specific technologies may still be frowned upon within industry, but I mean, to have someone like uh, Ed Selferton, for example, who is using artificial life algorithms at Lilly currently. I've had correspondence from uh, a fellow um, in San Diego who's working in a similar capacity using artificial life um, algorithms uh, in a pharmaceutical company. I mean, I think the more people that you get in contact with, obviously uh, our friends in New York at Goldman Sachs who are using artificial life algorithms uh, with what they do. I mean, I get a lot of correspondence from people in a wide variety of industries that are using artificial life algorithms for what they're doing. I think what interests me is it's only through the fact of doing these podcasts and getting people who listen to these podcasts who are in these areas doing these things with artificial life, that anyone can really get a scope of where artificial life is being used currently. I wonder how many people, uh, how many of the people who use it in industry would call it that? Well, this is a very interesting thing. I mean, obviously enough that they found the Biota podcast. Mm, okay. It could well be, Tom, that uh, that the uh, the Biota podcast is one of those things not fit for work, you know? Well, maybe, maybe, maybe headphones only listening. But I think, I mean, what I found through my surveying is that it's incoherent to say that artificial life isn't used in industry. And certainly I picked up Mark Badeau on that instantly. The problem here is that we just have no adequate surveying of how it's actually being used. And conversely, if we had that surveying and we went back to Lilly, Intel, IBM, et al., Goldman Sachs, and said, isn't it amazing that you're using this unifying technology together? I don't know. What's your sense with regards to how Sun does that with Java? I mean, how does Sun get industries that are using Java to contribute back to Sun in some regard? How does that work? Well, they've uh, they've open sourced the virtual machine, of course, and uh, so that was already about a year ago that they uh, started working on that in in, uh, in on, a, on a large scale, and now it's it's basically complete. So uh, it's uh, you know, in in a sense, it's belongs to the community now and uh, you know there's just so much technology built into the virtual machine it's it's unreal i mean there's so much uh thinking that's gone into it so many uh, i can imagine phd theses on uh, on exciting subjects like uh, garbage collection and uh, you know uh, different uh, different algorithms for uh, for managing pointers and, and whatever else you know there's all sorts of thinking that can go go on uh, in the virtual machine especially since the the virtual machine actually busies itself with um, you know analyzing the behavior of code and recompiling it uh, from time to time to make it uh, more efficient during runtime so you know as there's just so there's such a rich potential for um, you know, studying uh, how to improve a virtual machine because you've got uh, you've got a view of um, you know a running program, so you can you can optimize what needs to be optimized according to the run of the program rather than a static analysis beforehand. Beforehand, a decade of brilliant brilliant thoughts went into the virtual machine. I've accidentally gotten you started talking about your other love, which is Java. So perhaps, perhaps moving back a little bit to artificial life, I think what you've done is outlined perfectly my point with regards to the fact that we can't do one or the other. We need to have academia 
basically moving to unify what artificial life is in parallel to industry because I mean this is what you're saying that the the academic component of Java actually assists with the industry component and also it creates a shared language it creates a shared um, although it's a, a bit of a pun with regards to Java but it creates a you know, a shared set of ideas that links both academia with industry. But moving on to another topic that's come through the Biota uh, conversations, mainly, in fact, this was from Mark Bedeau himself with regards to uh, discussing his talk at the uh, Futurist. I think it's already occurred, but uh, Mark Bedeau uh, did a talk. In fact, it's happening this evening. I think it might actually be happening right now. <laughs> and Mark Bedeau is giving his talk. But he mentioned, uh, obviously, uh, Darwin's 200-year um, anniversary and also 150 years of the origin of species. But he made a point at the end that The Guardian, uh, the newspaper, had said half of all Britons don't believe in evolution. And I think this was a statistic which I had only attributed to the US, but The Guardian is now attributing to the UK as well. My thinking from this and I know I'm speaking to the choir with regards to a number of folks who listen to this podcast, is that we are in an unusual position as artificial life developers to actually change that and improve the situation. As we are now in a position where Professor Dawkins has retired, I mean, he's going to obviously be part of the, uh, the community uh, leading on as he writes children's books and, you know, talks about various things. But what do you think we can learn from Professor Dawkins in terms of improving the numbers of folk who at least believe in evolution, Gerald? Uh, it, it's uh, what, what Professor Dawkins would call it would be uh, consciousness raising. It's, it's really just a question of uh, getting the information out more than anything else and, and avoiding misconceptions, you know, trying to, uh, you know, to, to, to clear away some of the cobwebs, which is what I want to do with Darwin at Home. You know, the, the whole idea is I want to invite people out to, uh, to play around with it, you know, invites you into the algorithm. The whole idea is to get people acquiring a feel for it so that all the, the, the academic uh, aspects of it can, uh, can come later if you, if you uh, become more interested, but you can have a basic idea of, of what it is and what it isn't. People have to lose the, people have to lose the inappropriate associations. You know, you have to, you have to, there, the, the reason a lot of people will say that they don't believe in evolution. The reasons they don't believe are quite bizarre if you, if you dig into it. So if you, that, that's the interesting thing, you know, to find out why. Because usually it's tied to things that you wouldn't expect at all. Now, there's, there are certain big reasons why people don't believe, and if they can be, uh, if they can be sort of erased, then, then you'll have a, a natural tendency to, you know, if people can develop a little curiosity, then uh, they, will, uh, they will discover that um, you know, every, every, everybody is sort of agreeing that you know, it, it's, uh, evolution happened, it's obvious, it can be proved five completely different ways. So you know, get in the game. It's, it's, it's unfortunate that people are um, stuck on these issues. It'd be nice if you could sort of disassociate it with all the, the bizarre uh, connections that hold it back. Yes, I think it's an interesting metric because it's a contemporary metric. I mean, going into the future, obviously, we will have these kind of surveys. And it was interesting that the Pew Research uh, Center was attached to it because I've um, demonstrably found errors in a number of the previous uh, pre Pew Research surveys. In fact, they're notoriously flawed for a wide variety of reasons, typically sample size, but also just the, uh, the surveying methodology. And I think the idea of do you believe in evolution is probably a loaded question in terms of the way people sure. are going to respond. There are to it. lots of lots of ways to to ask that question, but you know it's it's like uh, it's like the question do you believe in God? That's it's it's almost a bizarre, absurd question. The answer to that is just not Boolean. You know, it's just <laughs> you're talking about science here. I mean, it's a bit like saying do you believe in calculus? Do you believe in you know the the notion of belief? associated with something that is part of science, I find really quite curious. And this shows the framing of the problem as well. I mean, it shows that... I, I know lots of people who don't believe in calculus. <laughs> That's exactly I mean, my point. My point yeah, is that yeah. <laughs> what, what you're seeing here is, in fact, 
probably a strong criticism of a variety of educational problems. It could actually be quite primary and not related to um, large-scale uh, conspiracies uh, which, which occur on, on, on both sides. I mean, this is Dick Gordon surveying perfectly. So I think the, the nature of the problem in some regards needs to be reframed, and we are ideally placed for that. Do you see, in terms of the folk that come after Dawkins, do you see logical successes to him in terms of science representation, in terms of atheism? Is there a new Dawkins, do you think? Well, you know, he's a hard act to follow. I mean, if you if you look at what he wrote in 1976, you know, when your jaw drops then, and then you read it in 1995, and then you read it in 2008, and still, it still is amazing to read that the ideas that uh, that uh, that that you know were were put in his his books. Um, you know, you we just. You just have to wait, I suppose, for for someone of, of similar stature. There's he started a lot of balls rolling. One of them, for example, is the whole idea of a meme that took on an entire life of its own and became, uh, you know, another sort of discipline that is slowly creeping into academia. Academia can be uh, it can be used as a useful model, I think, in, in the social sciences and a number of other areas as well. Yeah, up just, until a know, couple of years ago. I was under the impression that Dawkins was going to write uh, an anti-New Age book following the God Delusion. In fact, certainly um, my understanding was that there were chapters written towards this. And from what I'd heard from people that had had sussed this, was was the idea that he was actually going to write uh, an anti-contemporary mimetics treaty as part of that, because obviously mimetics has become a thing that is so completely removed from contemporary Dawkins, particularly as it exists in a New Age sense, that uh, my understanding was that he was going to write against that in the, in the, the book. And I think, however, uh, that that idea was, was shelved, and I don't know what the, the time frame is with regards to the children's books or what, well, what he's far, doing. As far as I know, as far as I know, if, uh, from everything I've read, uh, Dawkins has uh, has avoided uh, the whole uh, idea or the you know the whole discipline of memetics. Just saying, it's, it's not my thing. I'm not uh, I'm not uh, going to uh, talk much about it because other people can do it better, and and a lot of people have, especially you know something like uh, Darwin's Dangerous Idea by Dennett. It's just a, it's an incredible book on the subject, and if you want to if you want to dive deep into memetics, that's that's the book to have. So talk but to the primary, about. the primary memetics reference that he makes aside from Dennett is Susan Blackmore, and Susan Blackmore is very much a New Age figure. So yeah. I yeah, she was actually she was. If you look into her history, she began as a total New Age uh, person, and then uh, that that sort of uh, didn't didn't last. She's uh, she sort of lost that later she on. She still speaks at the Mind States conferences, which are predominantly. I mean, I've heard and I've heard her recent Mind States conferences, and it's very much of the New Age. I mean, my thinking was that I'd like to, I'd like to hear what she says at them because I can appreciate you know returning to a community that you're uh, familiar with and uh, and coming with a new message. So it'd be interesting exactly what she says, not necessarily that she appears. You know, it's just like writing in Dick Gordon's book. Exactly, you don't have to. You don't have to be a creationist. No, no, I, I agree entirely. I'm, I'm, uh, whilst I'm not as loose as, as I'd normally be on these kind of calls, um, uh, I, I encourage people who have access to um, her speaking. I mean, my, my interest with regards to Dawkins has always been the paradoxes, particularly the, the anti-science atheists that he's picked up on and embraced through, um, you know, particularly his recent work. I mean, I think this is what's fascinating with Dawkins in terms of the way he can resolve these paradoxes. And my hope with his future writing, which seems to have been prematurely cut short in some regard, is that he would actually address that within his own writing. To a certain extent, he has done that, um, particularly if you look at his works in the 80s and early 90s. Um, but, you know, it's an interesting, it's an interesting kind of continued um, set of ideas. And certainly, I think, as we start looking at these kind of popular metrics, like do you believe in evolution and these kind of things, maybe these are either the metrics that, you know, future, future Dawkins, as they listen to Bios Live, or as I hope they listen to Bios Live, start considering whether whether the metrics are even valid and whether new metrics need to be created in order to actually set challenges to resolve into the future. 
because I certainly think in terms of a popular saturation, uh, you know, Dawkins' legacy is there. Um, but in terms of actually solving real-world problems, in terms of actually addressing what is going on with regards to evolution and belief and how this has to change in the future, these are really questions which are still, you know, percolating through the, the community that Dawkins has, has stoked, such as, you know, yourself, myself and others who are listening. Dawkins hasn't, you know, hasn't been able to or, or been, you know, it's not his thing to address every demographic. It's not, it's not easy, you know. So uh, with, with, for example, the God delusion, he has uh, obviously, um, you know, it's been, it's been read a hell of a lot. Um, and uh, a lot of people are sort of shocked by it and, and taken aback and, and whatever, uh, because it's, uh, it's just, too much, but for them, and a lot of people have criticized the fact that it's so, uh, you know, over the top. But on the other hand, you know, it's it sort of, uh, there's, a, there's a, a significant demographic that is really, you know, just fully appreciative of the book. And, and In your own reading, have you read much Bertrand Russell, for example? I haven't read much specifically, more, more citations and things, but no, not, not actual books of his. Yeah, I mean, as someone who, who read a lot of Bertrand Russell, kind of in parallel to um, early Dawkins before The God Delusion, and similarly, having done other surveying, I mean, my sense reading The God Delusion, and I, I sped read it, was that if you had read Russell prior to reading The God Delusion, you would have wanted Dawkins to do more Russellian analysis. I felt a lot of it, and I say this actually in Dick Gordon's book, was a kind of call, counter call to the worst aspects of the popular anti-atheist movement um, in this country, people like Ann Coulter, who I don't think are Dawkins intellectual equal. I don't think it's Dawkins. I always felt that he'd lowered his standards by answering these kind of, you know, nonsense illogical claims. And certainly I've already discussed what, two years ago with you um, the aspects of history that he had no reason to address. The only people that talk about Hitler and these kind of things are, you know, don't understand the kind of logic that his movement from people like Bertrand Russell had built up. So, I mean, I think what is interesting now is that the, we are moving into something where Dawkins will obviously continue to exist, continue to write, continue to participate, as people like Dennett do as well. But it's for, it's for the active participants currently. I mean, people that Dick Gordon is instigating, I mean, people who may not listen to this podcast but are part of the, you know, what Dawkins has started, Dawkins Youth Movements, for example, that need to be seriously thinking about what happens in the future when these metrics are raised, like, you know, half of all Britons don't believe in evolution. But I think it's interesting that the, you know, the biota community is also part of this discussion through our, you know, our early instigation from Dawkins, which you talked about when you came on in, in Thanksgiving time frame. Do you think we as artificial life developers will ever get away from these kind of questions or do you think they're always perennially going to be part of the artificial life discussion? Well, I mean, Tom, what's it like to create artificial life? I mean, it's, uh, it's uh, your own little god delusion, right? Unfortunately, folks, this is where the tape runs out. As you've heard, a number of good discussions this evening. Apologies again to Gerald G. Jung for not catching all the audio. However, I think a number of good discussions were caught. I'm heading to Australia for the next few weeks. I will be back in about a month's time with William R. Buckley to discuss artificial life on the atomic level, March 27th at 8pm Pacific. Look forward to talking to you all then. Thank you very much for tuning in. Thanks to Gerald again for participating.